my Govanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in my previous video, I discussed the distinction in Tolkien's work between magic and technology, and where we might look at some things as being technology rather than what we think of as magic. And this is kind of not looking at Tolkien's own approach to the issue, because Tolkien kind of sees magic and technology as very much the same thing. As I pointed out in that video, his definition of magic is, you know, using some external device or plan, or well, his his definition of machine, I should say, is using some external device or plan or the like to give some means of accomplishing your will more efficiently, dominating nature or, you know, controlling other wills or that sort of thing. And he says that this can even be applied to the use of one's own inner talents in the same kinds of contexts. What he distinguishes these two things from is art. And this kind of gets to what Galadriel tells Frodo and Sam when she says, I don't know what you mean by magic because you use the same word for the things that Sauron does. And so in this video... Whereas before I was not really using Tolkien's own dichotomy, this time I am going to look at Tolkien's dichotomy and examine some different areas where we can kind of see the distinction he's making and again look for those areas where the line is maybe a little bit fuzzy and it's not 100% clear. Because there are certainly areas where it bleeds into the realm of accomplishing your will more quickly, but not necessarily to the point of dominating other wills, but it might go that way. And we'll see even some instances recur from the previous video, which I will link in the description below. And hat tip, by the way, to Girl Next Gondor, because she brought up a couple of parallels that I hadn't even thought of, and I'll mention those when we get to them. Uh, so some of this definitely goes credit to her. She is a better literary reader than I am in a lot of ways. I am only really good at reading The Lord of the Rings because I've read it for so long and so many times, whereas she seems to actually just be better at reading literature in general because I'm just not very good at it. At any rate, with that credit given, and I'll mention those when we get there, let's take a look at some really interesting examples of where we can try to distinguish art versus magic. So one of these is going to be Galadriel's mirror. And of course, I mentioned this last time in my discussion of the Palantir because they seem to do kind of similar things. But I pointed out there that Galadriel's mirror does not really seem like an, an example of technology. There's something going on there besides the construction of a device that that accomplishes a particular goal. It seems like something else going on, because all she has is a, a basin that she pours water into, and, I mean, there doesn't seem to be anything in the way of machine or technology going on. So what is going on with Galadriel's mirror? And, by the way, of course, this is contrasted with the Palantir, which I pointed out, you could conceivably understand that maybe the Palantir is in some sense a form of technology. Is there magic involved in the sense that we would think of magic versus machine? Probably, but, I mean, would Tolkien have considered video conferencing magic if, or, you know, let's say somebody from the Middle Ages, would they have considered video conferencing magic? 
Yes, because they couldn't possibly understand the technology. So the Palantir could be in that category. Feanor figured out something that we can't figure out because he was just so dang smart. The Mirror, I think, is a very different type of issue because the Mirror of Galadriel is something that has no real impact from the will of the user. Galadriel specifically tells Frodo and Sam, you know, it will bring things to you that you don't really... It's not about what you're looking for. It's going to show you things. So it's not like you're looking into the mirror and you make it show you things. Your will is not really controlling it. And so from Tolkien's perspective, there's definitely a distinction here because in the one case with the Palantir, you decide what you want to see with it. You use your will to control what the Palantir shows you. With the Mirror of Galadriel, the mirror does its thing, and you're kind of a passive recipient. And what's cool about this is the fact that while you are a passive recipient, it's still really unclear how it works. Now, we can get some idea of why it works, not necessarily so much how, if we know our Silmarillion. Because in the Silmarillion, we learn that water, and especially like running waters and, and things like that, have the music of the Ainur more strongly than any other element in Arda. And so we also get a lot of instances of Ulmo sending messages up rivers and via other sources of water. And there's something about water that just tends to connect back to the original music of the Ainur. And the music of the Ainur is something that kind of tells you the general flow of history. It doesn't necessarily say, like, here's every small detail that's going to happen in history, because we also get the the line about humans as opposed to elves being able to kind of shape their own destiny, which seems to be a reference to they have a little bit more free will in terms of shaping the way the story plays out than maybe elves do. And Frodo and Sam being human rather than elf, you know, in, in a broad sense, there's some element there of, you know, they have the free will to change things. And that's why Galadriel will tell Sam, you know, some of the things that you see may not actually come to pass, and it may only come to pass if you turn aside from your current path to try to stop them, which is a really interesting idea that you see a lot in, for example, Greek mythology. Uh, but anyway, point being here, I think the Galadriel's mirror instance is really a case of that music of the Ainur being <sighs> channeled is really the wrong term, but I can't think of a better, maybe amplified, or, you know, I mean, whatever Galadriel is doing by putting it in the basin is in some way making the music a little bit more accessible to the person who looks into the mirror. How that works, what that's doing, totally unclear, but that's definitely more along the lines of an art form than it is a use of magic. It's like you're learning to, you know, kind of go with the music, which is music itself is an art. So Galadriel has figured out a way to listen better to the music, in a sense, and have other people listen to that music as well. And that's more of an art form than, you know, concentrating your will and accomplishing some goal. So that's one example that we get that's fairly 
interesting and fairly clear, but there's a whole lot of other ones that are a little less obvious. One other example that, and this is one of the ones that uh, Girl Next Gondor mentioned, is Gandalf's fire and fireworks versus Saruman's blasting fire. It's a really interesting dichotomy because they're both using fire, but for very different purposes. Although there are examples where Gandalf uses fire for purposes somewhat more similar to what Saruman uses it for, and I'll get to that. But of course, Gandalf's fireworks, it's hard to argue that that's really an art form. I mean, that, that it's not an art form. The whole purpose of the fireworks is to inspire awe and wonder and, you know, to, to create something beautiful. That's, you know, there's an art to that. And is Gandalf using a little extra magic maybe in accomplishing that, you know, goal? Yes. So you could argue that there's maybe some magic and not it's not just pure art going on there. But again, that's kind of hard to say. Gandalf as a Maya who has, you know, very intimate knowledge of the music of the Ainur may just know enough about how things work that it's not so much magic as just being really good with, you know, making fireworks. At any rate, you've got, of course, in contrast, Saruman's blasting fire, whatever it is. And in the last art, last video, I argued that it is an instance of technology, probably. Uh, but it's clearly at least a magic in the sense that Tolkien means it. It is used to destroy, dominate, you know, accomplish his goal in an efficient and ruthless even manner because it's a way of getting through the walls at Helm's Deep very efficiently and very destructively. Definitely something that Tolkien would distinguish from the art of Gandalf's fireworks. And that's not to say that Gandalf doesn't ever use magic in this sense, because Gandalf will use fire in multiple instances outside the context of fireworks that lead a little bit more towards the Saruman end of the spectrum. And of course, that's not to say that Gar uh, Gandalf is using them in a, in a bad or evil way, but he does use fire to attack, say, the wargs or whatever kind of wolves they are that attack them after they come down from the slopes of Karadras. In the middle of the night, they get swarmed by a whole wolf pack, and while the rest of the company is mostly fighting them off with swords and bows and axes and whatnot, Gandalf actually ends up making a huge firestorm, basically, to scare them off and, and damage them. And then, not only that, but on Karathras itself, he actually uses fire magic, seemingly, to light a fire that nobody else could kindle because of the wetness of, you know, the wood and all the snow... And clearly that is an attempt to accomplish a specific goal in a specific context more efficiently. And it is a, a sort of domination of nature because he's like, okay, well, nature's not really cooperating right now. None of us have the skill or art, you might say, to light this fire. So I'm just going to make it happen. So is that a form of magic in the sense that Tolkien is talking about? It seems to be. Was it necessary to save their lives? probably, and you could argue there that ends justifies the means, and I'm not saying that Tolkien is an ends justifies the means kind of guy, but it's like, you wouldn't normally use fire magic, or whatever you want to call it, just to start a fire for funsies, because that would be kind of inappropriate, but it's not per se evil in the way that, say what Saruman is doing, 
you know, Saruman is, you know, being absolutely destructive with his blasting fire, whatever it is. So what Gandalf is doing would be inappropriate in a typical situation, maybe, but it's not always inappropriate because every now and then you just have to do something like that to survive, and they're in that kind of a situation. But the attack with the wargs, that's really clear because that is almost exactly parallel to what Saruman is doing. It is using fire in a very combat-oriented way to attack an enemy. Now, again, Gandalf is using it for a good reason and kind of as a last-ditch desperation type thing, whereas Saruman is using it to, you know, destroy a an innocent opponent and accomplish his will in overrunning Rohan and, and controlling people. So there's bad reasons to do things like this and good reasons to do things like this. Does that mean that Gandalf is dangerously close to doing something that Tolkien might consider bad? I think it's a good example of how we can have things that allow us to accomplish good, but if we don't take great care with how we use them, they lead down a really bad path. If Gandalf just decided to solve every problem with fire, you know, if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, if he went down that path, he might end up where Saruman is, you know, just taking the easy route every single time. And so I think that's a really good dichotomy, and it really highlights the issue of whose use of fire really makes what kind of sense. Is it being used in a bad way or a good way? And it's a good example of how even something that we might call magic or machine under Tolkien's framework isn't necessarily inherently evil, but it is at least dangerous. Now, one area where the line gets really fuzzy is the rings of power. The rings are of somewhat vague purpose and use for the most part. Sauron's ring is not. Sauron's ring is very obviously designed with the sole intent of controlling the wearers of the other rings. What the other rings do is a little bit on the fuzzy side. But it seems like the Dwarvish and Manish rings are at least probably more along the lines of what we would consider magic or machine than, say, the Elven rings. The Elven rings, Elrond tells us, are about, you know, preserving beauty and obtaining knowledge and these kinds of things. So their purpose is certainly seemingly less magic or machine-driven, and yet their method for achieving the goal is kind of magic-slash-machine-driven. And I mentioned, of course, in my last video that I don't consider the rings to be machines or even the one ring to be a machine. It is an external device or apparatus or whatever that is used to accomplish a goal, but it's not in the nature of technology. There's, you know, whatever is powering the ring is Sauron's own internal strength, not his, you know, ability to craft a really great you know, machine. That's that's not what's going on. So that, from a a conventional standpoint, looking at magic versus machine, it's clearly not a machine, but it certainly is magic in the sense that Tolkien meant it in that quote about, you know, using it to control or accomplish a goal more quickly. So 
the idea here is that the One Ring is clearly on the magic end of the spectrum. Arguably, the Elven Rings are on the art side of the spectrum, but just kind of barely if they are, because while their goals may be more art-related in that sense, it's not really clear that the rings themselves accomplish it in that way. It seems more like a, well, what we want are artistic goals, but we're going to use machine-driven methods to achieve those goals. And that's kind of questionable. So you get the issue of the elven rings being maybe not such good ideas in and of themselves after all. They accomplish really nice things because with the aid of the Elven Rings, you of course get Rivendell and Lothlorien being the very special places they are, and the ring that Gandalf carries allows him to do his job much better. But would it have been better overall if those rings had never existed? In Tolkien's view, probably so. So you definitely got a little bit of tension there. One area where we can see a clear idea of what Tolkien meant by the art of the elves as opposed to, say, the magic of Sauron is in the magic, what we would think of as magic, of the literal art of elvish singing. And this is one that uh, Girl Next Gondor mentions in her video about song as it relates to how magic plays out in Middle-earth, and that's definitely a great one to go watch. I linked to her entire playlist in my previous video, but if you haven't watched any of them and you just want to watch one, the one on music is a really big one. Because again, music of the Ainur is a big deal, the singing of elves is a big deal. And the reason why singing of elves is a big deal is we get all these instances that show how the singing of elves accomplishes something seemingly magical. And Tolkien talks about this even in his, his uh, I think it's on fairy stories essay, but it might be in a different one. But he points out in, in whatever source it is that the fairy, fairian ability to enact drama is so much more powerful than the human one that fairies or elves actually kind of make you live the thing that they're singing about. And we actually see this happen a couple of times in the Lord of the Rings itself, because when Gildor meets Frodo in the Shire with his band of elves and scares off the Black Riders, once they start singing later on, Frodo kind of loses himself in in the thing that they're singing about. But it, it's even stronger in Rivendell, because then you get into the Hall of Fire and the elves start singing, and we get the description of Frodo, who feels like he's literally in it like he's just become a part of whatever they were singing about and he only comes to himself again when Bilbo starts into his Arendil poem so elvish singing as Bilbo tells us in the Hobbit is not a thing to miss but it's also something that you do miss because you don't really experience the singing you get drawn into the thing that they're singing you don't even really notice that it's elves singing necessarily so it's really interesting how Tolkien describes this but he has many other instances as well Finrod Felagund whenever he first finds a troop of men in the eastern woods of Beleriand will take up a crudely fashioned harp and start singing 
And even though the men don't understand his speech when they wake up and hear it, it's like they understand it. And Frodo has this same experience too. Gildor and his elves, when they start singing something in Elvish, Frodo doesn't understand the words. His his ability to speak and understand Elvish is not that good. But because of the magic or art of the elves, he experiences the meaning in a direct way that allows him to using the word loosely, translate their song. And so we get the translation of the song in in The Lord of the Rings. Even though he didn't know really how to translate it, he just kind of knew, kind of intuitively in a sense, what they were meaning by what they were singing. And then, speaking of Finrod Felagund, another example of song being used in an art-type way, although in this case it we get fuzzy again and it bleeds a little bit more toward magic when Sauron learns that Finrod and his group and Baron are marching around his territory in the form of orcs. Well, he doesn't know it's Finrod, of course, but they ha- he has them brought to him and he suspects something and he tries to kind of strip them of their disguise and in the lay of Luthien, Lathian, rather, they get a song battle going as Girl Next Gondor points out in her video. So they start singing, and it's the power of the songs that kind of determines who wins the battle. It's Sauron. Spoiler alert. Uh, So the ability of song to accomplish things in this particular instance seems a little bit more like magic-slash-machine-level stuff, because Sauron is using his song to dominate and to control... And even Finrod's response is in some way, you know, a counter to that, even though he's not trying to control Sauron. He is trying to maintain control of what he has already done so that Sauron can't undo it, which ultimately fails. And one wonders if the failure is in part due to the fact that he's kind of playing on Sauron's own field. But at any rate, the power of song, and Elvish song in particular, and this, of course, harks back to the music of the Ainur originally, because the music of the Ainur is nothing but a giant choral work that it leads to the creation of the world. And it's like the elves inherit a bit of that, such that when they sing, it's almost a creative act, such that you enter into their little created world. It's a sub-created world, in Tolkien's terminology, and... It's like they have a step between the subcreative power of the Ainur and the subcreative power of humans. Humans have the power to subcreate. Tolkien subcreated Middle Earth, and it's a really good subcreation because if you read it and you enjoy it, you really can feel like you're there in some cases. But the elves, it's like you, you almost don't have a choice. You just you get engrossed in it and you become a part of whatever they're seeing. So that's, you know, a really good example of a clear instance of Elvish art. A few final instances that we can look at are magic items, what we think of as magic items. And by magic items, I mean here things like the elven rope, which seems to untie itself, and the elven cloaks, which seem to blend in with literally any surroundings, pretty much, except maybe Mordor. Uh, And then elvish blades that glow blue when orcs are close. 
These things are interesting, and one might be tempted to think, for instance, that the elves' rope and cloak are more along the magic machine end of the spectrum because they accomplish a goal and you know make the will more effective. But is that really what's going on? Because when the elves describe what they did with the cloaks, one of the hobbits, I think it's Merry, maybe Pippin, asks, are they magic cloaks? And one of the elves laughs and says, I don't know what you mean by that. Uh, but we put the love of you know, all the things that we love into the things that we make. And so they love the trees, they love rivers, they love, you know, various different things, and that's why the cloaks will blend into these different environments. It's not that they're making the cloaks with the specific intent of, okay, we want this to be a perfect, you know, camouflage no matter where it is, which is probably why it doesn't work in Mordor, by the way. There's nothing in Mordor that it, the elves would love for it to work with. So when they make the cloaks, it's simply their own art and the, their love of what the things that they love going into their art that makes it work so well as camouflage. Now, the elven rope is a little bit trickier to explain because how does the elven rope just kind of untie itself? Which seems to be exactly what happens. This seems a little bit more like magic, but it's, you know, you can imagine it going either way because if the elf rope hears the name Galadriel, does that make it automatically untie? Or was it just kind of gradually untying itself the whole time and then it just happened to come down when Sam said the name Galadriel? Maybe, in, you know, not so clear. I mean, it's really not ever stated beyond Frodo and Sam's conversation how this elven rope works. Sam surmises that it's because he said the name that it came down. Frodo, who seems to be a little bit more clever, but maybe a little less wise in this instance, thought maybe it was just a shoddy knot. But in either case, the elven rope is, again, a thing made by the elves and into it they put the love of all the things that they love. And so, if they put the love of things into the fibers of the rope, seemingly that would result in a rope that's going to be pliable and strong and do what it needs to do in a given circumstance. Do I think Galadriel is a magic word that sets it off to untie itself? I doubt it. Because in that sense, would it really be a very safe rope? If you're climbing it and then you say the word Galadriel and then it comes off, not so good. That's not a very useful rope. It's only once they're down at the bottom that the rope comes off. So I think there's something else going on there. What it is is probably meant to be really intangible. But it's a really interesting case because it's it seems almost more like it has to be on the magic end of the spectrum and yet I don't think it is. And then you've got glowing swords. And the glowing swords we don't really get a whole lot of discussion of. We just know that they do glow. The only real reference, and I can't remember where it says this. It may be in The Hobbit. It may be in The Silmarillion. It may be in The Lord of the Rings. I can't remember the source. But somewhere it says the reason the blades glow blue is because the elves put the hatred of the orcs into the making of these swords. 
And that's why whenever they're near the orcs, they glow blue. It's it's an out outward expression in the sword itself of the elves' own hatred for the orcs that they were fighting. And so, again, is the hatred an indication that it's more magic? No, I don't think so, because... Ultimately, the point here is that it's the art. You know, the the way they make it is what makes it do the thing that it does. And the way they make it is with hatred of orcs. It's not, you know what, I want this thing to be an orc detector, and therefore I'm going to make it glow blue when the orcs get close. That That's not how it's written, and it's not what it's meant to say. It's, I hate orcs, and this sword is meant to kill orcs, and... You know, it's like the sword kind of responds to that and says, oh, okay, I'm going to let you know when there's an orc nearby. It's kind of like that. And there's maybe a slight parallel here to the black sword, Gurthong, which is made by Aeol, the dark elf, and he's called that, you know, in a very special way for a very special reason, um, which Melion gives to Kuthalian, Bela Kuthalian, and says the heart of the maker of this sword is in it, and it's gonna turn against you. I mean, she doesn't use those words exactly, but it's like it's dangerous. It's got you know, it's not just black on the outside; it's black on the inside. So there's something about the way elves put their heart into what they do that makes things be a certain way. And there's a weird parallel there that's not technological. And it's not exactly magical, it's just really interesting. So those are some really interesting examples of things in Tolkien's universe that either are clear examples of art versus magic or show where the lines get a little bit fuzzy. There are probably a whole bunch of other examples one could bring up because being a high fantasy world and being a very complex and nuanced work of, you know, world building... There are things like this everywhere. So if you can think of other examples that are really cool and have very interesting implications, you know, bring those up in the comments and we can discuss those. But these are the ones I really wanted to focus on here because I think they give us some of the most interesting insights into how this distinction works in Tolkien's world. If you did enjoy the video, please give it a thumbs up and share it around. Subscribe and click the bell icon to get notifications for all my videos. You can also find me on Rumble, Odyssey, and get podcast versions of these as well. Follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions, and you can support me over on Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.